0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, August 20th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. From A Closer Look, Q&A with Lego Sculptor, ISU alum, Chris Isle, by Sarah Bogards. From a sales career at Wells Fargo to running a business building life-size Lego statues, Chris Eil will celebrate his return to Iowa with a live Lego build of George Washington Carver at this year's Iowa State Fair. He started his company, We Build You, in Iowa in 2018 with everyone working out of basements. But 2020 brought the opportunity for Isle and his team to open a gallery at the Circa Casino in Las Vegas. The George Washington Carver Lego build will be featured at the Iowa State University exhibit in the Varied Industries Building and honors the 125th anniversary of the renowned scientist receiving his master's degree from the university. The following Q&A session has been condensed and edited for clarity. How did you start a business building life-size Lego statues of people? We've been at this for three years. We still consider ourselves a startup business new to the art. Three years ago, I was working at Wells Fargo, and I had this idea that people would really dig seeing themselves in Legos. And so I walked out of the bank, went to the dollar store, picked up a $20 kit of Legos, spread them out on my desk and started thinking about how we could put these together to make people or make a product that people like. Originally, I was going to take a couple of months, research and teach myself how to do it in my own time. But it worked out that I had to quit my job. It was a very lonely trying three months of teaching myself how to build it. But then all of a sudden, I got to the point where I was above the waist on my very first client, and we could see it from the road when people would drive past my place. So at that point, the cat was out of the bag. I had to formally say, I'm starting this company, and we're going to be the only place in the world where somebody could walk in and order a life-size Lego statue of themselves or a loved one. How do you build a life-size Lego statue? How it started was I wanted to build a stormtrooper like the one Barney Stinson has in the show How I Met Your Mother, and I thought I bet using this three-dimensional drawing program called SketchUp, I could use the push-pull feature to do the masks at the size of the Legos and create a way to give me a roadmap to that stormtrooper. But I knew I needed help, so I met this guy named Chris Rao who just graduated from Iowa State. He's still with me. He said, that's a great idea, but it's never going to work. So Chris figured out the right way to do it. We knew we could do it, we just didn't know how. We found out that we could do this by just using existing technology that's already out there. We use three-dimensional drawing software to draw everything up ahead of time. If you don't have a roadmap with what you're building, you're on a one-way track to the Looney House. Sometimes we think that we're smarter than the computer, but the technology is always right, except when it comes to faces. Then we rely on a team approach, or we rely upon our own gut instinct. So the technology is really involved in the drawing and how we draw it up, because the Legos that we use are the same Legos that Lego came out with in 1958. We use the most basic Legos. We don't use any of the fancy new ones. We just use the good old-fashioned bricks and plates, and that's our niche. How did you find clients, and what was their response? I followed the Wells Fargo sales approach to a T. At the end of the day, after building all day, I would reach out to 30 people that I thought could benefit from my product. I would say I used technology to build the pieces, but creativity to sell them. The crazy thing about it was the next morning I would have three people reach out and say, I'm interested in this, tell me more about this. So I'm getting a 10% rate of return on people who are interested in my product and that's what gave me the confidence to say, all right, let's go build. My first clients were the largest real estate agents in the United States. I was featured on a national television show, Million Dollar Listing, Los Angeles. Our second client was John Papajohn, then Simon Estes, a world-renowned opera singer, and then the Westminster Dog Show, and yet we had never built a dog before. What is the motivation for you and your team? Legos are just a vehicle that we use to capture the person. I kind of jokingly say, whether we were using Legos or Pixie Sticks, it doesn't matter. People always ask, how many Legos do you use and how long do they take? It doesn't matter how many Legos we use. It doesn't matter how long it takes. We're not doing it for the sheer grunt of the work. We just do it because we're there to capture that feeling or that emotion of what we're creating. So with George Washington Carver, we're trying to educate people on what this man did. 125 years of innovation and technology, and throw in a little creativity. We think we nailed it. So this week, we're going to build George Washington Carver using 44,000 Legos, and we're going to go 11 hours a day. How did you come to return to Iowa and do a build for your alma mater? Everything I learned about art, I learned from three people at Iowa State, Carol Custer, Jeff Johnson, and Lynette Polman. Being a third-generation Iowa State student, And having my crew all love themselves from Iowa State, I knew we wanted to do a job for Iowa State. I've been reaching out to Iowa State for three years trying to lay the groundwork and trying to figure out how my art could promote what they have going on. And after three years, Carol Custer said, Okay, well, we're going to promote George Washington Carver. Chris, you can build George Washington Carver, right? What will the George Washington Carver Lego statue look like? Myself, Carol Custer, and Paxton Williams did our research and came across an old photograph of George Washington Carver in the lab putting in the work. That's him, you know. We're not going to build him standing there accepting an award because that's probably not what he would want to be known for. He would want to be known for putting in the work. And that's kind of what we do. We just put in the work. In what sense is your work an innovation? Our innovation is simple. We're just appealing to the human aspect of people. We took a product that the world has loved for the last half century. We take people's desire to see themselves and their loved ones, and we combine the two. So is that innovation? But it's also kind of a good idea. Iowa State made a backdrop for me when I'm going to be sitting there building And it had a quote from George Washington Carver. It said something to the effect of, If you do the common things in life in an uncommon way, you command the attention of the world. I'm like, okay, everybody plays with Legos. We're not innovative because we love Legos. Everybody loves Legos. But we're taking those little pieces and creating something big in someone's life. What has changed over the last three years? What's been the biggest takeaway? You asked me this question when I'm super homesick and can't wait to get home and to be able to do this project. But when I first started, honestly, I think my goal was to be in Las Vegas and make a name for myself and be fancy and live it up on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. But after three years and having the opportunity to do some of that, I'd trade it all in just to go home. I'm just ready to come home this week. Favorite Lego build to date and why? Simon Estes, hands down. It didn't matter what it looked like. Simon Estes isn't my favorite piece because we used the most Legos or because it was the most intricate or because it was the fanciest. My favorite piece that we've ever done is Simon Estes because it's Simon Estes. Simon Estes. He's a great man, and we blew his mind. Here's a man who has seen some things in his life. He was a world-renowned opera singer in the 70s, traveling the world. I can't imagine, I wish I could, what Simon Estes has seen in the world. So my favorite piece to date is Simon Estes, not because of anything to do with how the piece looks or its physicalness. It's just because we think we captured the man perfectly. We took the photograph of him from the 1970s when he was performing at the Met and it became a piece of history. Any short-term or long-term plans for the company? The answer is, we don't know. We'll see. But I guarantee you, over the course of the fair, what, a million people attend the fair? A million people are going to walk through that gate. If we can take a common activity, like playing with Legos, and do it in an uncommon way, and a million people are going to see it starting on Thursday, I have a hunch something's going to happen to the life of our business over the course of the fair that is going to be life-changing. I'm pretty sure I'm going to meet somebody, or a project is going to come about, or we're going to spur some idea or some future build over the course of the fair. Our next story, Closer Look, Jennifer Brown, Economic Development Coordinator, City of Waukee, by Kathy A. Bolton. Central Iowa is a familiar place to Jennifer Brown, a Wisconsin native who recently was tapped to be the City of Waukee's Economic Development Coordinator. Brown, a graduate of Central College in Pella, worked for a lawmaker in the Iowa legislature for a couple of years before moving to Washington, D.C., and working on the staff of Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. Brown and her now husband, Kevin Brown, decided they wanted to put down roots in the Midwest and moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin, where Jennifer had landed a job. The Midwest is not only home, but we enjoy that quality of life aspect, which really is second to none, Brown said. Brown and her family stayed in Wisconsin for nearly 20 years. When Waukee advertised the economic development job, Brown jumped at the opportunity to return to central Iowa. I went to college here. I met my husband here, she said. We've been coming back to Des Moines for a number of years because my husband's family lives here. Brown said she is impressed with the growth of Waukee, a Dallas County community that in 2010 had 13,970 residents and now has more than 23,000. The growth in population means there are myriad development opportunities, Brown said. There's a lot of develop- developable land available in Waukee, she said. The projected growth of Waukee is quite substantial. It's exciting to be part of a growing community, she said. We recently caught up with Brown. How did you get interested in economic development? I always knew I wanted to be in some service role. Civic leadership, civic service. I wasn't 100% certain what that format looked like. Initially, I started my undergraduate education in political science. There was a job in economic development open, and I thought that it could be a good fit. I sent them my resume, and I got the job. So, actually, I fell into economic development. It's really not a sexy story. What has kept you in economic development? First and foremost, the relationships and the relationship building not only with the business community, but also bridging the gaps between organizations. I've not only been in municipal government, but I've also had the opportunity to lead an economic development organization, and I've worked for a chamber of commerce. I've really been able to diversify, a term that is probably overused, in economic development roles. It's been exciting to be part of the relationship building whether it's being part of the real estate aspect of economic development, or just connecting people to opportunities and helping solve problems within the communities themselves. What project or projects are you most proud of being part of? For me, a project can not only be one that is the greatest investment for a community, but can also be the greatest loss for a community. When there's a great economic loss to the community, rallying the troops, bringing people together and saying, how are we going to deal with this loss? And then putting together a strategy for economic recovery can be things to be proud of. In one of the communities I served, a nuclear plant said it was going to shut down. The community was going to lose 600 jobs and the economic impact of the closure was more than $600 million. Not only was it the largest employer in the community, it also paid the highest wages. Some might say, why is that something you're proud of? A lot of partnerships were developed. A lot of efforts were put into bringing people together and putting together an economic recovery plan that made sense for the community. I'm very proud of that. In the city of Green Bay, we had a 300-plus acre business park that I had an opportunity to work with developers and single business owners, from hotels to a private hospital. It was still an opportunity for me to work with the community. I put together a marketing plan for the business park and also worked to help grow the tax base there. What attracted you to Waukee? I had an opportunity to come and meet with the community before taking the job. I got a tour of the area and that just solidified the deal. The education facilities blew me away. Just looking at the Waukee Innovation and Learning Center That's just such an asset, not only to the community, but to the region. These types of facilities can help advance adult learners and entrepreneurs. That was just one thing that was exciting to me. As I was touring the city, I thought that it was well-designed and well-thought-out. The amenities that are here will attract more residents, and more residents mean more businesses. That also means we can attract new employers because they will have the staff that they need. What have you learned about Waukee that you didn't know before taking the job? I didn't realize how many new residents Waukee is getting annually. When you see the single family permit numbers and drive through the developments and see it actually being built, it kind of blows you away. And I'll reiterate. It's a very well thought out city in terms of planning and the infrastructure. You see how they stub out the streets, so that's for the future and it's already planned. The main streets are already at the width they will need to be for the future growth. A lot of communities don't do that. I think that's great for future planning and it also reduces spending in the future. You've been with Waukee since May what are your top priorities my top priority is an economic action plan I'm visiting with the existing business community and learning from them I will be assembling an economic action plan that I'll present to the council the plan will include the downtown triangle and revitalization of that area I'll focus on how we, as a community, want to revitalize that area and what types of incentives are available for that area. We also want to make sure we're doing a great job marketing property that is available for development. What does Waukee need that you want to attract here or expand here? I can answer that from what everybody is telling me. All I hear is target. Give us a target and we'll be happy. We recently had the announcement about the Keytown Loop Entertainment District. That's a pretty fantastic announcement that we'll have a 3,500-seat entertainment venue and a lot of ancillary and supporting developments. If someone came to Waukee today and returned in five years, what would they see that is different? First, I think that the Apple data center would be here, or at least some portion of it. I think that there would be more school, more educational facilities. There would be a lot more development to the north, so you'd see a lot more residents. And then you would see a lot more commercial growth to the north as well. I think you'd also see Waukee's boundaries expand. A closer look at Jennifer Brown, age 46, Hometown Green Bay, Wisconsin. Lives in Waukee. Family. Husband Kevin Brown and son Reese. Education. Bachelor's degree in political science from Central College in Pella in 1997 and master's degree in management from the University of Wisconsin Green Bay in 2007. Hobbies. Likes to travel. Work background. Beginning May 2021, Economic Development Coordinator, City of Waukee. April 28, April 2018 to April 2021, Existing Industry and Innovation Director, Fox Cities Chamber of Commerce. September 2007 to February 2018, Executive Director, Kiwani County Economic Development Corp. November 2005 to September 2007, Deputy Director of Economic Development, City of Green Bay. January 2001 to November 2005, Business Development Specialist, City of Green Bay. And January 1999 to December 2000, Professional Staff Member, U.S. Senate, Washington, D.C. Contact information, email Brown at waukee.org and phone 515-978-7410. Our next story, Winnebago officials pledge continued commitment to Iowa. Company plans to officially shift headquarters to Minnesota. Winnebago Industries announced it will shift its corporate headquarters address from Forest City, Iowa, to Eden Prairie, Minnesota, effective December 1st. Leaders of the Recreational Vehicle and Boating Manufacturing Company pledged to remain loyal to the company's Iowa roots. Officials said the company plans additional hiring at its Iowa plant and will continue to invest in training and capital improvement projects at the plant, which employs about one-third of its workforce. Winnebago Industries has transformed into a broad outdoor lifestyle company with a premium portfolio of brands and products, Michael Happy, president and CEO, said in a press release. Over the past several years, through strategic growth investments, we have expanded our company's footprint to now include locations in Iowa, Indiana, Florida, and Minnesota, Happy said in the statement. Our Twin Cities location has been and will continue to be an effective resource for executing our vision as a premier outdoor recreation enterprise as it supports the growth of all of our strong brands. We are genuinely proud of our historical roots in Forest City and the incredible contributions of all of our past and current Iowa employees to the company's success through the years, he said. Winnebago's executive offices have been located in Minnesota since 2016, company officials noted. The company's Iowa operations will continue to be the manufacturing hub of Winnebago Motorhome and Specialty Vehicles products. Winnebago currently employs about 2,100 people in Iowa, approximately one-third of its 6,500-person workforce, with plans to add team members in the next 12 months to meet increased demand for Winnebago RV products. About 100 employees are based out of the Eden Prairie office. Winnebago officials said the company continues to implement major infrastructure and economic investments to support employees, training, and job growth at its North Iowa campuses, including... Providing multi-year support totaling $500,000 to the John B. Hansen Career Center, an initiative to provide students with educational opportunities and skills in high-demand areas, including advanced manufacturing. Initiating a hiring campaign to meet increased demand in Winnebago RVs and the need to add additional new team members in North Iowa over the next year implementing facility improvements, and expanding motorhome manufacturing capacity. North Iowa has been home to Winnebago Industries for 63 years, and it will remain a critical community for current operations and future growth, said Hugh Bauer, president of Winnebago Outdoors. We are committed to supporting North Iowa and being active contributors to the community as we strive to further develop our storied Winnebago brand by driving it to new heights through a relentless focus on quality, service, and innovation. IEDA approves awards to Denison snack maker Tyson. A snack maker has been awarded state tax credits for a project that will expand its production lines at the former Quality Food Processors in Denison as part of a series of awards announced today by the Iowa Economic Development Authority. The awards awards also included tax credits to Tyson Fresh Meats, Inc. to expand its facility in Louisa County in southeast Iowa. In all, the IEDA Board approved awards that will lead to the creation of 170 jobs and more than $50 million in capital investments. Monogram Food Solutions, LLC, was awarded $156,700 in investment tax credits and sales service use tax refunds for its $13.9 million expansion of the former Quality Food Processors Plant in Denison. Monogram acquired the plant last year. According to IEDA documents, the project will create 125 jobs that pay a qualifying wage of $18.51 per hour. The expansion will allow the company to add two manufacturing lines for slicing retail bacon as well as modifications to the building to accommodate the new equipment. The IEDA board also approved $537,337 to Tyson Fresh Meats for its expansion in Louisa County. The $15.4 million project will allow the company to replace machinery to allow for the use of new processing technology for pork products, including pork loins, pork shoulders, hams, and spare ribs. According to IEDA documents, the project will create 10 jobs, eight of which will pay a qualifying wage of $19.65 per hour. Other awards announced today include Fluid Quip Technologies in Cedar Rapids, $50,000 Forgivable Loan, $50,000 0% Interest Loan, and $77,923 in investment tax credits and sales, service, and use tax refunds. The company will also receive $20,000 in tax increment financing from the City of Cedar Rapids. The $1.3 million project is expected to create 32 jobs that pay a qualifying range of $24.20 per hour. The company, which develops new technologies for the biochemical market, plans to build out the second floor of Shell office space in its building for conference rooms, break rooms, reception, health room, and support spaces. Siemens Tech in Indianola, $49,140 in sales, service, and use tax refunds. The company, which makes volumetric concrete mixers, plans to expand its existing production and office space. The $2.8 million project is expected to create one job that pays a qualifying wage of $28.01 per hour. Calcium Products in Webster County $225,000 in sales, service, and use tax refunds The company, which makes calcium-based fertilizer pellets for the agriculture and turf industries, plans to build a 70,000-square-foot production and warehouse facility to replace its existing facility. The new facility will allow the company to increase production by more than 200%. The more than $17 million project is expected to create two jobs that pay a qualifying wage of $20.47 per hour. You're listening to the reading of the Business Record for Friday, August 20th, 2021, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Our next story, On Leadership, Reflections on Leading Through Disruption, by Susanna DeBaca, President and Group Publisher, Business Publications Corporation. The last year and a half has been filled with constant disruption, from the ever-evolving pandemic, economic volatility, and amplification of racial equity issues, to the election, and for those of us in Iowa, a derecho. Leaders in all types of organizations have been forced to rapidly adapt. Certainly this has been the case for me. As I look back, much of 2020 seems like a blur, as I have navigated changes for our organization while simultaneously attempting to care for others and myself. So it hit home when I read a Deloitte report called Leading Through the Fog of Disruption. That report referred to a classic Harvard Business Review article, in which authors Warren Bennis and Robert Thomas argued that harrowing experiences shape us, and crises force leaders into, quote, deep self-reflection, where they examine their values, question their assumptions, and hone their judgment, end quote. I recently had the chance to moderate a discussion of local leaders on this very topic, and the panelists' comments underscored the self-reflection and examination of leadership mentioned in the Deloitte article. After the event, I circled back around and asked them to answer the following question. What is one of the most important lessons you have learned in leading through the disruption of the last year and a half? Terry Caldwell Johnson, CEO, Oak Ridge Neighborhood. Navigating uncharted territory while facing unprecedented circumstances and the potential for a community spread on the Oak Ridge campus was a huge challenge. The life and death situations that many faced became political footballs in a game we were not poised to win. But the resolve of our neighborhood and staff and the relevance and resilience of our organization and staff took center stage. Christy Naus, President, Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines. Building a strong culture is key and carries through times of disruption. The trust, common vision, and understanding of purpose are essential for teams to be aligned, supportive, and to function at their highest level when times get tough. Being intentional about building culture before, during, and after disruption is critical to success. Marty Martin, President, Drake University Culture is everything. You build a strong, resilient, disciplined, and mission-oriented team when times are good so that you can overcome them when things inevitably become more challenging. If you don't have great culture going in, you are highly unlikely to find that magic in the midst of disruption. J.C. Ryswick, President and COO, Seneca Companies. It is not a question of if adversity will come along, but when. When it does come, we tend to think we should have all the answers as leaders. But when a year like 2020 comes along, everything we thought we knew gets tossed out the window. It is more important to always be authentic than to always be right. Jeff Russell, President and CEO, Delta Dental of Iowa. If you pour a cup of water into an empty 55-gallon drum, it will just splash a bit in the bottom. If the drum is filled all the way to the brim, that cup of water will splash everywhere. Our emotional drum fills up every day. It is important to know how to recharge and empty the water from our drum. Tiffany Taushek, COO of Greater Des Moines Partnership. Flexibility is an art form. We can do anything, but we can't do everything. Moving forward as a team with focus and commitment to the strategic objectives while remaining nimble is critical. The Deloitte article concludes, Armed with a renewed purpose, values, and mission, organizations and their leaders can set the conditions by which they rise to the occasion and rise out of the fog of pandemic. We all have the opportunity to learn from the recent disruption, and I have been reflecting on what I can take away to become a stronger leader. How will you use this opportunity? Best Practices for Leading Through Continued Disruption and Change include Focus on Mission Don't lose sight of the primary mission of your business, says Ryswick. As leaders, we do have platforms to effect change, but we must continue to focus on those we directly serve. We won't always be right, but if we're always authentic, we will, never, we will understand that we don't have all the answers, and that in fact, the perfect solution rarely exists. Never underestimate the power of the ordinary impact you have on those around you. Engage everyone. Constantly ask, have we authentically engaged all voices? Says Naus. She encourages leaders to consider if there are unintended consequences of the decisions at hand, and to ask, how will equity be advanced in this process or decision? Adapt with Grace Everyone experiences change differently, says Russell, and adaptability matters as the world around us continues to change. We don't always know what change is happening in the lives of our co-workers, neighbors, and friends, he points out. More than ever, it is important to have grace and patience with each other. Check-in As a leader, it's important to recognize others may be working through challenges unknown to you, echoes Tauschek. We can't expect team members to give 100% of themselves to our work, she says, encouraging leaders to check in with themselves and others around them daily if needed. Ask them how much they have to give to the team and the work that day, what percent. Then ask them to give 100% of what they have to give to that team that day. Turn Frustration and anger, Anger into Action It is natural for leaders to experience heated emotion during periods of disruption, especially when many challenges are so deeply personal. Caldwell says she became, quote, inflamed when the public health crisis simultaneously created a hate crisis of unbelievable proportions, end quote. But she harnessed that emotion to build coalitions and advance critical issues in our community. And finally, inspire through your attitude. Inspiring your team to be their best through adversity ultimately takes a positive attitude. Be generous in spirit, Martin says. Trust, empower, and presume the best of others. In a guest opinion column, submitted by Steve Peterson, founder of Bursting Through, DEI and the Human Workforce – The Queer-Straight Equation Bursting Through is the storytelling movement for the queer-straight relationship. It is also a for-profit business founded by a queer man who had a very successful 27-year corporate career. That queer man, me, had first-hand experience of well-intentioned, but overtasked, HR and diversity teams trying to create emotionally safe work environments for everybody. I know HR knows that an emotionally safe work environment creates a more productive and profitable company, and I know it's time the rest of the company got on board. Today's company cultures, driven by millennial leadership, require diversity, equity, and inclusion to be taken very seriously and treated as integral parts of those cultures. Why? Because companies must be forces for good to be relevant in business today, and that good must start within the business itself to be real, to be lived, and to create emotionally safe environments for the entire workforce. DEI is no longer a box to be checked off. I believe that only companies that truly embrace DEI will succeed and create a roadmap for future success. Our times demand that DEI is authentic. My community, like many others, needs to be heard, valued, and respected to feel safe at work. 53% of LGBTQ plus workers report hearing jokes about lesbian or gay people at least once in a while. 46% of LGBTQ plus workers said they were closeted at work. 50% of non-LGBTQ workers report that there are no employees at their company who are open about being LGBTQ. One in five LGBTQ workers report having been told or having had co-workers imply that they should dress in a more feminine or masculine manner. 31% of LGBTQ workers say they have felt unhappy or depressed at work. The top reason LGBTQ workers don't report negative comments they hear about LGBTQ people to a supervisor or human resources? They don't think anything would be done about it, and they don't want to hurt their relationships with co-workers. How do we achieve true emotional safety for an entire company workforce? Well, first, it has to be a company value, not a box, to be checked off. Then the question becomes, how do you put that value into action? My deep belief and lived experience is that the best way is through the path of least resistance. As a species, humans are storytellers. We love to share our stories and we remember stories. When we are here heard, we are more likely to listen to others. Stories are our power. Storytelling is not only important to connect us and develop stronger teams, but it is also a key component of any business. When I was an executive, a big part of my job was developing and presenting ideas. I presented often. Essentially, a presentation is storytelling to get approval for an idea and a budget. Storytelling brings people with you on your journey. They become invested and want to be a part of the adventure and help you get to your desired outcome. Most of us want to help others and want to see others succeed, and it's even better when their success can be our success as well. The most recognizable example of the power of storytelling in business is TED Talks. The talks show us the importance of communication. It is also important how we communicate and communication is not the same in all aspects of the professional structure. We are multidimensional, and our communication needs to be as well. TED Talks teach us because, quote, TED is a global community, welcoming people from every discipline and culture who seek a deeper understanding of the world. We believe passionately in the power of ideas to change attitudes, lives, and, ultimately, the world. In other words, TED Talks believe in diversity and storytelling. Psychology Today has this to say in The Psychological Power of Storytelling. Stories provide order. Humans seek certainty and narrative structure is familiar, predictable, and comforting. Within the context of the story arc, we can withstand intense emotions because we know that resolution follows the conflict. We can experience it with a safety net. Stories are how we are wired. Stories take place in the imagination. To the human brain, imagined experiences are processed the same as real experiences. Stories create genuine emotions, presence, the sense of being somewhere, and behavioral responses. Stories are the pathway to engaging our right brain and triggering our imagination. By engaging our imagination, we, com- we become participants in the narrative. We can step out of our own shoes, see differently, and increase our empathy for others. Through imagination, we tap into creativity that is the foundation of innovation, self-discovery, and change. It's my deeply held belief that the most natural, powerful, and effective way to foster workplace compassion, empathy, and understanding is through the superpower of storytelling. This understanding leads to an environment where employees show up without fear of being their true selves which in turn increases retention, engagement, productivity, and innovation, which all contribute to increased revenue. Empathy is one of today's most powerful team-building tools. Businesses today have more complexities to manage than ever before. Many of those complexities are completely out of your control, like tariffs, supply chain shortages, and pandemics. But there are things that are in your power to control. You can control your workplace culture. You can ensure you provide a physically and emotionally safe workplace for all employees. You have the power to control how your company treats the people within and influence how they treat one another. You can lead on this topic or you can follow, but you cannot ignore it or you won't have a company left to run. DEI is a reality of a successful business. The path of least resistance to authentic DEI is storytelling. Story sharing plus understanding and empathy equals emotionally safe workplaces. Steve Peterson, founder of Bursting Through, a volunteer victim's advocate for the LGBTQ plus center of Southern Nevada. He is a speaker, host, and storyteller visit www.burstingthrough.gay to learn more Another guest opinion column submitted by Gregory Lynn one young professional perspective on return to office and hybrid workplaces Confused relieved micromanaged excited anxious indifferent ready These are descriptors young professionals provided when I asked how they feel about returning to the office. In a recent survey of over 3,600 U.S. workers conducted by the nonpartisan think tank, the Conference Board, 55% of millennials questioned returning to the office. Couple that with the raft of recent articles detailing resistance from young professionals to -to return-to-office policies, and you get the sense of a generational divide on in-person, hybrid, and remote workplaces. Now, if you read the subtext of these articles, you might get the impression that the resistance to -to return-to-office mirrors stereotypes of Millennials and Gen Z. For example, we're really talking about laziness, entitlement to flexibility, and free time. But I'd like to flip this around, redefine the question, and approach it from a framework of equity and inclusivity. Instead, let's ask, what makes you successful at your job? The pandemic gave us all an opportunity to reflect on success in the workplace. For some of us, we learned the performance of work was separate from work performance. To get your job done, you didn't need to dress up, be in the office, commute to work, or make small talk. For others, we learned that the performance of work created the necessary separation and motivation that increased work performance. To get your job done, you did need to change your clothes to get into the right mindset, sit in a different room with your perfect work-from-home setup, or meet with your coworker every afternoon to debrief or gossip. We are all motivated by different internal or external factors. For young professionals, these lessons are compounded because we've had less experience in the traditional office model and are better able to imagine a different office model, one based on success for you. As we return to in-person or hybrid workplaces, managers should work with the young professionals in their organizations to define the factors that motivate success. Does this mean every young professional works best in a remote or hybrid work environment? No, but some do. Personally, I have returned to the office. My ideal workplace that allows me to be successful is separate from my living space and filled with the noise and physical presence of people with the option to be alone when I need to recharge. At Drake University, you'll often find me working out of a public workspace or at Mars Cafe. For me, returning to the office also means returning to the local businesses that support my success, physically and mentally. When I was working from home, I was much less likely to grab a coffee from Mars Cafe or grab lunch with a co-worker at Doe Company or Gersha. Now that I'm back in the office, I get to not only see my friends and support local businesses, but also take the necessary mental break that I often forgot to take while I was working from home. But that is success for me. How can we have more open conversations to be inclusive of all working styles? Gregory Lin is an assessment coordinator in the Office of Institutional Research and Assessment at Drake University, as well as the president-elect of the Young Professionals Connection Board. He was a member of the Business Records 2021 40 under 40 class. Now, Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files, a 1938 view of Iowa. A new book, Republic of Detours, How the New Deal Paid Broke Writers to Rediscover America, traces the work of more than 6,000 out-of-work writers to create travel and information guides for all 48 states during the Great Depression. The Federal Writers Project produced more than 2,500 publications between 1937 and 1943 as part of the Works Progress Administration, headed by Iowa native Harry Hopkins. Although Iowa writers were among the first to embrace the FWP and the fourth state to publish a guide, Iowa receives little notice in the book by New Jersey author and journalist Scott Borschert. Much of Borchert's 304-page text focuses on states with controversial writers, including Richard Wright in New York, female African-American anthropologist and author Zora Neale Hurston in Florida, and Chicago's Nelson Algren, a well-known socialist sympathizer. Not that there weren't controversi- controversies in Iowa. A 1985 introduction by Grinnell College's Joseph Fraser Wall to... Iowa, a guide to the Hawkeye State, originally published in 1938, noted the tension between writers and the book's nominal sponsor, the Iowa State Historical Society, which was asked to sign off without editing the text. Wall wrote that Historical Society director Benjamin F. Shambaugh objected to text that said, quote, Iowa even had indications of culture that farmers distrust outsiders, that the Iowan is commonly thought of as a great boaster, and that his boasting is largely in self-defense, impelled by a sense of cultural inferiority, that many of the people were not proud of being the center of the hog belt, that the farmer, conscious of his own deficiencies, is willing to pay high taxes for the maintenance of educational institutions, end quote. Shambaugh failed to remove those and other comments from the book, although Wall reported fears of negative responses were overblown. Wall wrote, Almost every major newspaper in the state gave it, the Iowa Guide, a rave review. Even the small towns liked the book, and the Iowa people seemed to relish the somewhat derogatory comments. The nearly 600-page book includes a 10-page chronology of Iowa history from white settler perspective, although it does include a 9-page essay on First Americans, providing passing notice to mound builders and Indians who predated discovery of the Mississippi River in 1541 by Spain's Hernando de Soto. Although Wall wrote that many of the book's essays were of, quote, uneven quality, he praised a section on agriculture for seeing in 1938 that Iowa was, quote, on the eve of a tremendous agricultural revolution, end quote, that would replace horsepower with tractors and see the development of hybrid seed corn and soybeans as major crops. The book's press and radio essay reported that the Dubuque Visitor was Iowa's first newspaper, although it lasted only 13 months in 1836-37. Iowa's oldest newspaper, the Burlington Hawkeye, was founded in 1837 as the, quote, territorial gazette and Burlington advertiser, end quote. By the time Iowa became a state in 1846, 24 newspapers were circulating in the Iowa Territory. Iowa's early newspapers were colorful and personal, with a 19th century editor in Iowa City writing that a competitor's, quote, long-winded speeches are as frothy as beer and as empty as his head, end quote. Although the Iowa Guide is now 83 years old, It contains a wealth of mostly forgotten information that I may return to in the future. For example, how many Iowans today know that Orville and Wilbur Wright, inventors of the airplane, lived in Cedar Rapids for four years as children before their parents moved to Ohio? And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, August 20th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack, You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.